coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Leading a meal with protein can be definitely a great option, especially for people who want to lose weight. Because as we said, protein is the highest in terms of uh, satiety uh, for the macronutrients. So that can help you eat less in the meal if you start the meal with protein. So that can be a subtle strategy that can subconsciously, subconsciously make you eat less and lose weight without even tracking or worrying about uh, food too much because right. you're consuming more protein, you're getting those nutrients in, and that mainly uh, is used to um, maintain, sustain, or build muscle mass, and you're getting even more full by eating it. So you tend to eat less calories overall, and that can help you lose body weight. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed nutritionist and owner of Physique Lab, Eugene Loki. He's worked with hundreds of clients in person and around the world. His specialties include improving fitness and body composition through a combination of specialized strength training programs and the building of sustainable eating habits. We discussed a wide variety of topics, including body fat set point, hormones and weight loss, high protein diets, the best way to build muscle, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. This was a great interview with tons of information. I know you'll benefit. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin. And I got a special guest all the way from uh, Italy, right? Yes. And it is Eugene Loki, right? We talked about his name for a bit and I probably messed it up, but welcome to the the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um, The power of social media. We actually met through Instagram. And if you check out his uh, Instagram handle, Physique, uh, that's P-H-E-A-S-Y-Q-U-E. You'll see all his great, I love like your content with your diagrams. I think it's just easy and simple. I think that's, that makes it great. So uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you're in Italy, right? Right. I'm, I mean, technically speaking, I am from Italy, but as of now, I'm not in Italy. I'm oh. in Kosovo. So I'm staying like at my grandma's. Uh, oh, where, where are you? Where are you at? It's called Kosovo. It's Kosovo. like a state close to Albania. Okay. And yeah, it's uh, one to two hours flight from Italy. Yeah. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you are a certified nutritionist, uh, personal trainer, right. and, uh, and you have some online platforms. Maybe uh, tell the audience a little bit about uh, your background and how you got into like health and wellness. Sure. So it started pretty much like around 10 years ago. Um, I just, my goal was to have abs. I was a chubby kid and all I wanted was like uh, how to get a great body, at least looking wise. So I tried everything, you know, the classic um, healthy diets, eat this, do not eat that, or, you know, the classic myths without actually having like um a solid scientific background and understanding. I was also a very young kid, so I wasn't even looking into it. 
But then the more I researched online and luckily like more information came on the internet that was backed up by science, the more I fell in love with it. Like whether it was nutrition or training, I was very like curious to actually understand like the mechanisms of how things would work. And that's what pretty much got me started. So yeah, pretty much a decade ago. And from there, I pursued my uh, career into health and fitness through certifications such as personal training or doing the uh, precision nutrition course. But I would say that most of my knowledge comes from a lot of experience because at the end of the day, within 10 years, you can make so many mistakes and learn from them that at one point you become I don't know, so conscious about a lot of stuff that you're also able to explain them in a very easy way, which was why I started Physique. In fact, if you look uh, at the name, which of course is spelled like Physique, like Physique of the body, right? Mm -hmm. But there's an easy in the word. So it's Mm P-H-E-A-S-Y-Q-U-E, which stands for building a physique in an easy way. So explaining stuff, um, in a simple way, which is what I do on Instagram through my uh, illustrations that I create myself. And really my goal is to educate people and understand like mechanisms that can be helpful in order to create like um, powerful workouts or even like uh, nutritional habits so that they can learn and um, enjoy, like make it fun to actually understand like science. Because I believe that most people love science is just the way that uh, they're taught about it that may sound boring for some but deeply I believe that if you teach stuff that can be like quote-unquote boring for some if you find like a way to talk about it in I don't know in simple terms not dumbing it down but finding ways that you can uh, talk about it more easily and even provide like illustrations so for the visual learners Mm-hmm. then I believe that it can be a powerful message. And that's what I've been doing for the past five years, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, you do all the hard work, the research, and then you put it into diagrams and make it simplistic. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it's great. I, uh, and it's perfect for Instagram. Um, regarding that, I was looking uh, at some of your illustrations and things like that. And some, some different topics crossed my mind as I thought that we could talk about that would be advantageous to the people listening. Mm-hmm. One of them, um, body fat set point. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know I, uh, I follow a lot and, and I read a lot with uh, Dr. Jason Fung and he talks about body set weight. And a lot of that's based off of your hormones and insulin levels and things like that. What are are your thoughts around uh, having a body fat set point and then being able to adjust it? So I guess there there are many points of view um, in this topic. There are people who suggest there may not be a set point at all, like at least biologically speaking, and others that suggest a more um, uh, settling point rather than set point, which is based mainly on the environment and your culture and what who you're surrounded with. So mainly based on your habits rather than an actual biological set point. Mm-hmm. However, there was like a new paper. Um, I don't remember um, top of my mind, the, the actual paper, but it's within the post that I've linked through it that actually shows that there is a biological set point. So personally, I like to think of a, a mix of both. So the set point, so actually that has to do with 
um, the fat uh, the fat cells and like how hormones can uh, regulate our hunger and energy expenditure, but also a settling point. Therefore, it's important to also take a look at the environment, like our habits and how we deal with uh, the food that surrounds us, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if we want to dive into it, I would say that there definitely is, at least in my opinion, a biological component. Therefore, we know that leptin is the main hormone which regulates the metabolism. And um, it works pretty much like a thermostat, which regulates your hunger and energy expenditure based on how much food you are eating, but also your body weight and your body fat, actually. Why that is important? Well, if you lose body fat and leptin is primarily produced by body fat cells, then if you lose body fat, then you also reduce the amount of leptin that you produce. Therefore, if you produce less leptin, your brain is going to um, get not used, but it signals a lower amount of leptin. Therefore, since it was uh, it's less than what it was previously, then it regulate, regulates the amount of hunger that you may feel along the diet and also your energy expenditure. Meaning, um, if you're dieting, losing body fat, then you will experience a little bit of hunger and you will not get as full as easily as you would before uh, the diet. And also you would lose um, generally, and obviously this becomes more and more prominent as you keep getting leaner, but you tend to rest more. There, and uh, so... That comes mainly in the form of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So I'm talking mainly about the components of the metabolism that uh, include uh, the daily activities that do not imply uh, resistance training or training at all. Therefore, it can be like fidgeting, walking around, I don't know, scratching your head, you know, these activities that you do not pay attention to, but they actually uh, play a role in a metabolic rate. And there was a paper um, that showed that NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis, can um, have a difference between zero, I mean, can go up to 2,000 calories per day. So it can be a substantial difference in energy expenditure when um, we're talking about NEAT. And it's the component that it's mainly, uh, that most people do not pay attention to. And also the reason why many people can face plateaus during their diet. So the set point um, in this regard, how does it play out with all of this stuff that I just talked about? Well, if we feel well, let's say within a set point, so it's generally uh, between 12 to 18% body fat for men and uh, about uh, 20 to 25-ish for, for women. We generally feel well there, right? We can do activity. Uh, we don't get like too hungry. And after a meal, we feel full. We don't need like anything else. But if we start dieting from there and get on lower body fat, and the lower we get, the more we experience this, we tend to get hungrier. We tend to get more lethargic. So the idea of a set point is basically this um, regulated amount of body fat that your brain is used to have on which it functions well. And the more you move away from it, the more you will tend to experience um, different sort of adaptations. Now, a good argument could be, well, if uh, this happens when you're dieting, 
doesn't work the same way on the opposite side. So uh, that, do you get less hungry, like the more fatter you get, or you get like extra energetic, the more you gain weight. And anecdotally, that tends to be the case, at least for me and for some clients that I work with, uh, meaning as you approach a bull, for example, so you're eating more calories and uh, nutrients in general. So you're gaining weight to gain muscle, but you will obviously gain a little bit of fat too. Then you tend to experience like much less hunger and you kind of force yourself to eat uh, a little bit at one point after you reach a certain body weight or a certain body fat level. However, then you would say, okay, but how could we explain uh, obesity then if that would be the case? And that's something that I cannot answer, but um, I know that the set point or at least the idea around the set point is that it's asymmetrical, meaning that while it may work this way uh, on the lower side, meaning when you lose body weight, it doesn't work exactly the same weight as you gain it. Obviously, there will come differences in hormones and, for example, uh, leptin resistance, which will definitely play a role, but also insulin. But it's much easier for people to gain weight than to lose it. And I think the, the reason why it may, quote unquote, be asymmetrical for most people is because of the settling point and how the environment plays um, a role in this as well. So, yeah, I hope that made sense. Uh, <laughs> keep in mind that I'm Italian, so my English is just what it is. And I try my best to uh, explain what I have on my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was good. That was good. Body fat set point. So, you know, I would say like for just for myself, um, yeah. I've been a, probably a certain body fat percentage for a while. Mm -hmm. And I find that even if I lose a bit, my, the tendencies to go back to that norm. Um, and right. probably people find that for body fat and also for their normal weight, right? They lose weight, they lose weight, mm -hmm. but then they always tend to go back to their norm. The key though, is I guess for that a lot that I guess the key question is, you know, how can you like almost like a thermostat in your house? If you're always setting it at 70, you're all, it'll always end up getting back there, but how can you set it and instead of 70 and set it to 68 mm -hmm. and, 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 and keep it there? Um, I think that's the, the question. And I guess there is an answer, but it's what people don't like to hear. So <clears throat> most people would like to like an answer to be like, okay, just do this and it will forever be uh, this physique and you will enjoy it forever. Mm -hmm. Well, the reality is um, worse in a way, because even like after years of maintenance of the new body weight and new body fat levels, when the meta when they tested metabolism in this the metabolism the metabolic rate in this study they still noticed a suppression in the amount of metabolic rate that, that they would have meaning that even if they maintain the physique through willpower or through habit changes or um, you know they pretty much did everything they could to just maintain the new level of leanness they would still have a suppressed metabolic rate so to answer the question is, yes, you can surely maintain the new physique and the new body fat level. It just will suck to do so, meaning that uh, you will face some changes. You will have to face a little bit of hunger here and there, and you will definitely have to change your habits. Uh, that will be the main requirement.
slowing. So the question is, is, and I have maybe what I would think would be an, maybe some type of answer for this is let's say you're 180 and you're 20% body fat and you want to yeah. get 175 and 15% body fat along those oh, lines. Okay. That's completely feasible. And I don't think like it would be such an issue to remain at that level. Okay. I'm mainly talking about like a much lower body fat level. So okay. let's say from 15 to 12 slash 10% or even lower, that's when it really becomes a much more difficult uh, thing to face pretty much. But from 20 to 15, I think most people can do it uh, as long as they have a little bit of structure in the, their program and they have some willpower to do it then it shouldn't take long and even once you uh, once you get there it shouldn't be that much of an issue to maintain it provided like at least a little bit of uh, positive ha habit formation such as i don't know eating more protein within the meals just to increase uh, the amount of satiety that you will get per meal and couple it with uh, some veggies uh, not saying you should cut everything else out, of course, have what you normally have, but focusing on these uh, can provide a lot of satiety and much, it can be much easier for you to maintain those results simply because you don't feel as hungry as you would uh, by not eating them. Yeah. And I was going to say, and I know Dr. Fung talks a lot about how focusing on getting that your insulin levels lower for a longer period of time. Um, can help maybe bring your body set weight down. And he's obviously a big proponent of fasting. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts around that? So personally, I like fasting myself, but just because it's always been like natural to me to skip breakfast. So mm -hmm. uh, it's not like it was something that I did because I learned about it necessarily. Obviously I learned more about intermittent fasting, mainly through Martin Burkan, who was like the, uh, intermittent fasting guru, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, or at least the one who introduced it mainly uh, or made it mainstream. But yeah, I, I used to fast like pretty much since I was a kid in school, just because I would wake up late and skip breakfast because <laughs> I would prefer to sleep more. And then I just found out about it and was, oh, cool. This is a thing. So, uh, but yeah, personally, I think it's definitely a strategy that works and I love it, but I would say, um, I would suggest it to people who enjoy doing it. Therefore, um, I wouldn't say do intermittent fasting if you are uh, the person who stays there with checking their clock and just say, okay, now I can eat, now I cannot eat, you know, um, pretty much caging themselves into a eating window that can do more harm than good because it can feel stressful or it just doesn't feel right for you. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, it's not like the only approach that works because if we match the amount of calories and nutrients that we will spread throughout the day or throughout an eating window. So if we apply intermittent fasting, then the results can be the same. So it's mainly about what works best for you or for the person, and then trying to structure a plan based on his or her habits. And so that he can stick to it for longer, which is what we know will bring the most amount of results. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, uh, I always say fasting is definitely something that you got to get used to, but it's interesting. A lot of people naturally don't enjoy eating breakfast or don't like yourself. It right. was, you didn't, you didn't even <laughs> think about the fact that you were fasting. You know, when you're a kid, you just eat, you eat more based off your intuition as you right. get older, right. 
there's this messaging from all these companies telling you that you should eat all the time. And every, and it's like a social norm thing that you should be mm -hmm. eating. But when you were a kid, there, there was none of that. And you just sort of followed your intuition and your hunger hormones were more in line with what you really felt. And exactly. I think that's a big issue now with a lot of people is that, you know, we've all, you know, our, you know, we're all like eating all the time because we think that we need that for energy when we really don't. Exactly. And most people who live uh, probably won't need like so much food, even if uh, they're bulking. So for example, I can bulk at very easily at 2,800 calories. Uh, I'm very uh, sedentary, so I don't need like that much food even. Now, uh, obviously fasting has a lot of benefits though, um, even when it comes to food selection and meal um, volume, for example. If we can find like people who enjoy having large meals, like myself, maybe yourself, if you're fasting, then fasting can be an option, especially when dieting. So we already know that to lose body fat, you need to create a caloric deficit, therefore eat less than your body needs to sustain its body weight. So if we want to pack those calories within um, a number of meals, but still have at least a voluminous meal and not like a very small one, then intermittent fasting can be an option. And I feel like those are the main benefits. Obviously, um, there can be more benefits like on a cognitive level and even like a, on a cellular level. Right. I don't personally like to stress that upon clients because most people just want to learn uh, what is the easiest, quote unquote, and best way that they can do stuff that they want to do without having to necessarily nerd and focus on it like and give their whole life into it, right? So yeah, I think uh, any option can work. And again, what matters the most to me is that people find... Um, the best approach that works for them because that's the only way that they can do it long-term and not mm -hmm. short-term. And that's what's going to bring the results. If you can find like, uh, whether it's fasting or not fasting, if it's something that you can stick to and it's not like something that you you feel you're doing as a job pretty much, like I'm dieting, you know? Uh, I have to diet from Monday. Like right. you're now signing up for a new job or something. If it's something natural, then you will stick to it regardless. And you will, you won't even feel the need to cheat on your diet or, you know, get off track just because you do it normally. And that's what is going to bring results. And also to answer uh, one question that you asked me, which I didn't reply was whether or not the set point can be changed. Um, there's definitely not uh, enough research on the matter, but from what it is, it looks like you cannot, meaning that even if you maintain your new body weight for a number of years, you will, your metabolism will still be suppressed and it will only get back to normal once you regain a little bit of body fat. So uh, I'm not um, convinced of whether or not it can be changed, at least based on the reference that we have now, but I'm open to change my mind. And if that's a possibility, I would be happy to know how so that I can get leaner and maintain my physique <laughs> like that for a longer time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, um, you know, calories in calories out, there's this yeah. ongoing debate and mm -hmm. between that and like the insulin model, mm. um, and which one con would control, uh, losing weight and body fat. And I've never been a big proponent of counting calories. I just, mm -hmm. I never done it myself. And like we talked about before, I try and for my clients as well, we, you know, eat 
eat till you're satisfied, like let's just say 80% full. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, what are your thoughts around? I mean, you mentioned calories. I, what constitutes how much someone, uh, you know, what's their calorie, uh, you know, deficit or what, 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 what's their, what should they be eating as far as how many calories? Like, is that something that you follow? Sure. So first of all, um, I agree with you that, um, it's not necessary to count calories by any means. And yeah, uh, most people shouldn't if they don't want to get to a certain and very specific level of leanness on body fat level. Now, when you say uh, eat at a 80% uh, level of uh, fullness, then it becomes very difficult for people to track what 80% even means. Mm-hmm. Uh, an 80% for me would mean, uh, I don't know, maybe eating much more than what uh, petite women would feel uh, at 80%. And that that's totally fine because we have two different metabolic rates. Now, um, intuitive eating, therefore eating like to your satiety, I believe it works, but only after you have um, an amount of knowledge in terms of nutrients and how much, and even a caloric uh, limit and how many calories, at least theoretically, a meal would have. Because otherwise, I believe you wouldn't be able to um, be accurate with it. Because if you have uh, a meal rich in protein and fibers, for example, you would get to that 80% level very fast because we know that protein and fibers are very satiating uh, as nutrients, as opposed to having like a plate of mainly carbohydrate-ish slash fat foods, you would probably get to that 80% level uh, after eating much more compared to uh, leaner protein. So even if you get to the same level, the amount of calories that you would have in both meals would be quite different. And that would throw off like a little bit of the results that you may get by being a, a tiny bit more accurate. Now, again, to reiterate, I don't think that most people should uh, learn or at least even worry about counting calories. And I believe that there's a method uh, even in teaching it because it can be uh, very tricky for people and it can be uh, and it can get very obsessive for some. And right. that's another ballpark of issues that a lot of coaches are not even aware of. So, but if, if we want to get to a specific level of leanness, for example, um, it can be contest level lean, such as bodybuilding, then it definitely um, plays a role because it's the most, the fastest way that you can get there because it's the most accurate. Now, how do we uh, calculate a metabolic rate or at least estimate it? Because every calculation that we uh, perform are just estimations. We cannot like be precise ever because your daily expenditure can change on a day-to-day basis depending on the circumstances of that day. Even like if you didn't account for your mom calling you to go pick her up at the station because, I don't know, her car broke. So Mm -hmm. you now are adding like some level of activity that you didn't even account for. You cannot predict those. So obviously metabolic rates change and they're variable. And even if, and the reason why they're variable is because the metabolic rate in itself. So the total daily energy expenditure is made up of the sum of other different variables. Mm -hmm. So we have the BMR, which is the basal metabolic rate, which accounts for the calories that your body uh, burns just to sustain uh, its basic function and just live pretty much. 
it's um, slightly different from resting metabolic rate because the resting metabolic rate accounts for the same amount of energy, uh, but just when you're uh, conscious. So you're, for example, I'm sitting here and not doing much besides from talking and my resting metabolic rate would be slightly higher than the basal metabolic rate simply because my muscles are contracting to maintain my posture, uh, right? As opposed to just laying on the bed and sleeping. Then we have to also uh, account for the thermic effect of food, which is the amount of calories that our body burns just to convert food into energy. And that changes for every nutrient. It can be uh, very different for the amount of protein that we have in a meal, the amount of fats that we have in a meal, the amount of carbohydrates that we have in a meal. So we can see that even the thermic effect of food can be very different depending on the meal composition that we have. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, it accounts for about 10% of total calories that we eat for the day. Uh, so it's proportionate to the amount of calories that we eat. <clears throat> then we have the thermic effect of activity which again, it's another variable because uh, every person can play very different sports and the amount of energy that uh, one sport will require will be completely different from another one. For example, uh, a rec recreational weightlifter could spend around 200 to 300 calories per session uh, by just lifting weights, you know, like a, the classic gym bro. But somebody who's working on very high intensity sports, um, which can be like running or whatever we can think of, like even like combat sports, those will burn a lot more calories. So right. the thermic effect of activity will be another variable to account for, which will be different for every person. And lastly, we have the non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is pretty much the amount of calories that you burn uh, during just, the day, like me gesticulating, talking, and that accounts for the most amount of calories. And as I said earlier, can go up to even to 2000 calories per day. So that throws off uh, the estimations by a lot if you're not being accounting for those, for example. Um, and this is, and as far, I'm sorry to interrupt you. As far as all, all these calculations, I mean, these are um, mainly based a lot on your genetics, right? Right, right. But I think even the environments plays a huge role because uh, if you live um, in a city, for example, and let's say you have uh, quite a good social life and you're used to go outside a lot, then you may have like a high level of need just because you like to go out and walk a lot with your friends. Or maybe if you have like a construction labor as opposed to office working, then your energy expenditure will, will change by a lot. And that is not necessarily training. That is just like your job and it's not like it doesn't necessarily account for um for the part of metabolic rate that accounts for training because it's a slightly different stimulus or at least not specific as training would be so all these sum summed up will uh, create the total daily energy expenditure and that's one reason why tde can change for everybody and my approach will not work for you not because um, my tracking calories will not work for you, but just because there are so many differences in how I live my life and you live your life that the numbers would probably change. And of course, uh, that's based on also on your lean body mass and, uh, your activity and your environment and everything else. Right. So I think the bottom line is there's a lot of different factors that can play a role into, um, you know, your energy expenditure 
And, right. and I think the bottom line is you just got to, a lot of it's a self-experimentation mm-hmm. and, and feeling what's right for you as far as, you know, how much to eat and, you know, as far as what to eat. Um, I know a lot of uh, you, a few of your posts on Instagram talk about protein. And I always talk about, I've had a lot of guests, Dr. Ted Naiman and things like that on there where, we, where we've talked about leading with protein when it comes to meals. What are your thoughts around, uh, you know, the correct, like may, maybe there's not a perfect macro, macronutrient uh, calculation or formula for everybody, but wh- what are your thoughts around, you know, protein versus fats and carbs? And- I love that suggestion and leading a meal with protein can be definitely a great option, especially for people who want to lose weight, because as we said, protein is the highest in terms of uh, satiety uh, for the macronutrients. So that can help you eat less in the meal if you start the meal with protein. So that can be a subtle strategy that can subconsciously subconsciously make you eat less and lose weight without even tracking or worrying about uh, food too much because you're consuming more protein, you're getting those nutrients in, and that mainly uh, is used to um, maintain, sustain, or build muscle mass, and you're getting even more full by eating it. So you tend to eat less calories overall, and that can help you lose body weight. So in terms of requirements for proteins, even that uh, will change based on your goal and uh, and sports. So uh, I like to talk about a lot about bodybuilders uh, because that's what I mainly focus on and the population that follow my page. But um, protein requirements... Um, will vary again, depending on goal. Uh, for bodybuilders specifically, generally it is advised to eat at least 2.3 grams up to 3.1 gram uh, per kilogram of lean body mass. So when I talk about lean body mass, I mean total body weight minus fat mass. Mm. And you calculate those number based on that. Scaling upwards as we get leaner, because the goal of a bodybuilder when dieting for a contest or whatever competition uh, is to maintain as much muscle mass as possible, or even try to build it if uh, it's a possibility at all. So the more we get leaner and the more fat we lose, the more uh, amino acids can become uh, readily available for energy use. And you want to prevent that. And you do so by increasing the amount of protein that you eat. So that's why uh, research suggests you eat 2.3 up to 3.1 per kilogram of lean body mass scaling upwards as we get leaner just to prevent muscle loss and present at the stage with the highest amount of body uh, lean body mass that you may possibly have. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a lot. That's a mm-hmm. lot of, that's a lot of protein. Um, it is a lot, but keep in mind that it's based on lean body mass. So if right. you, so if you weigh, like, mass. let's just say if you weigh 170 pounds, right. You, you're lean body body mass might be 140, right? Yes. But then you want to convert that into kilograms and multiply uh, by the grams. So yeah. the recommendations are based on kilogram per, uh, amount, yeah. per yeah. kilogram of lean body mass. Yeah. So one kilo equals to 2.2 uh, pounds. So you want to divide uh, 140 pounds by 2.2. And what you have uh, as a result, you multiply that by 2.3 up to 3.1. And it can be uh, a high amount for many, but it's not so high to the point where it becomes impossible to eat it. It's fairly um, easy to get protein in, especially with supplementations now. And 
you know, more protein rich food available everywhere. Pretty what, much. Are your, what are your favorite sources of protein um, for yourself or your clients? Good question. So I like to eat meat. Uh, it's very easy for me to cook um, chicken breast. I'm very basic like that, mm-hmm. but I like even purchasing, um, I don't know, like, you know, those milk um, bottles that contain 30 grams of protein, just a pop. And yeah, I like to purchase those because it's very convenient for me to eat them. But then even um, eggs, obviously, uh, it can be dairy, uh, pretty much everything that contains protein. But yeah, meat is probably my favorite source. Uh, Can be fish, tuna, and, you know, uh, protein shakes. Yeah. Okay. And um, just switching gears a little bit, because I know... (laughs) You talk a lot about uh, different ways to make gains. There's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that maybe are in their middle aged. Um, hmm. And what are your thoughts around gaining muscle as you get older? Um, and also, I noticed one of your posts is more volume equal more gains. I'm curious your thoughts around that. Hmm, beautiful question. <laughs> so obviously, everyone can build muscle at any age. And if anything, the elder can only benefit from uh, working out because There are so many positive adaptations that occur with resistant training that are not limited to only muscle gaining. That is really, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not training for your organism. I mean, it can be a little bit more difficult, especially because of the way that the elder may approach resistant training. They may be more fearful, even like psychologically, they may be more fearful of movement. So in that regard, I think like the coach should be able to uh, help ease that for the client and work on a progression that matches um, his evolution uh, mindset wise. So you don't want to rush it. Like for for example, uh, with a um, younger kid who only wants to lift as much as possible, you obviously want to gather it to a level of expectation that he has and easing it, um, easing it, easing him or her to still be able to make gains, but at a rate that he feels comfortable with. That doesn't mean that the person should not lift heavy. And when I say heavy, I mean relative to his or her strength, because that's still, that uh, is still the goal. You still want to, the person to get stronger because that's going to provide a lot of beneficial adaptation for the person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And for the question, um, does more volume equal equal more gains? The answer is it depends. <laughs> so there are many ways that we can talk about volume. Uh, generally in the research is talked about uh, volume load. So it can be um, number of reps times sets times load used. So that's uh, the formula for volume load. Then there is the number of sets or reps. And then there is a number of sets performed to failure. Now, when we look for um, correlation between hypertrophy and volume, we can only find that when we talk about volume intended as sets taken to failure. Because for example, we know that uh, both light loads and heavy loads can produce very similar hypertrophy, but the amount of um, volume load that the both styles can produce can be completely different. So we wouldn't be able to explain how that would be possible if volume load was the uh, right correlation of or formula to account for uh, volume and hypertrophy. Therefore, 
when we talk about volume in relation to hypertrophy, we want to talk about it in terms of sets taken to failure, because when we take sets to failure, we account for the amount of effort that we get within the set. And when we reach failure, um, both styles, so it can be lightweights, moderate weights, or heavyweights, reach the same amount of effort exertion, which is what will actually dictate uh, why we can get similar hypertrophy. Because when we perform a set with lightweights, um, the first reps feel very easy. Barbell uh, moves very fast. There's very little amount of effort, but as fatigue accumulates and the amount of effort perceived increases, then the same uh, thing, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the same will happen for the, uh, the motor units and the muscle fibers that are governed by the high uh, threshold motor units that will get recruited. Therefore, even with light weights, we're able to um, recruit all of the muscle fibers for the intended working muscles. And because of effort, then as we accumulate more reps through fatigue, we get to the point where even the repetitions with a, with a light weight can become very hard. The barbell moves very slow because the amount of effort is maximal. And that is very similar to how a heavy load moves. Mm. So slow so bar you, speed, yeah, high okay. amounts of effort will lead to similar level of hypertrophy. So you can get to uh, get there either way, whether you know a heavy load or light load, and depending on just the volume and the and the effort exerted. Exactly. However, while that is definitely the case and it works great, you obviously need to account for the amount of fatigue that each training style will accumulate. Because when we do more reps, more repetitions for a given set, then we will accumulate more fatigue within the central nervous system, which can be hindered. I mean, which can hinder our progress on the following workouts. Mm. Because if we're training in a fatigue state, then we will not be able to recruit all the muscle fibers for the intended working muscle. So that can be detrimental, uh, so to speak. In that case, how can we prevent that? is by using a load that gets us to close to failure and not like the true, true failure within a moderate slash <clears throat> heavy load so that we can get there faster. So we accumulate less fatigue. Mm. Uh, and that's funny because most people think about heavy loads being more fatigue oriented workouts. Well, instead it's mainly the lightweights that can cause it because of the amount of reps that you accumulate and the amount of hard reps that pretty much, um, fatigue your central nervous system and will not allow you, obviously, depending on how much you do of each, uh, can hinder your progress on the following sessions. So you want to calibrate the amount of uh, volume that you perform on a weekly basis. And you do so by also picking the right uh, ranges of loading zones in order to mitigate the most amount of fatigue and be able to progress faster. But yes, uh, on paper and obviously in practice as well, both lightweights and heavyweights can produce very similar amounts of hypertrophy, assuming we uh, compare both uh, when um, volume is intended as sets taken to failure. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I've had some individuals on my podcast recently, uh, Dr. Jo John Jaquish. I don't know if you're familiar with his band. He has a band system <laughs> called the X3. Um, hmm, are you familiar with it? Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, I talk a lot about it because I, I used to do traditional weights for a long time and I've mm -hmm. gone to a resistant band system where it's more variable resistance and, yeah. uh, and it's, it, it, I I've actually really enjoyed it and I've put on muscle from actually doing less 
than I would have to have done with uh, dumbbells. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been less strain on my joints and things like that. So I'm curious. I, yeah. Think, yeah. I think, yeah, um, using bands can definitely be a great option as because you change pretty much strength curves. Um, the amount of resistance that you um, produce uh, for, with a band changes due to gravity and the amount of force that um, one, the a given like a, a dumbbell or a um, band can produce is right. different. Right. So even that can be implemented into into a train strength training plan uh, that you do with weights, and actually can be a, a very good option even to train like for example um, lockout strength uh, for exercises such as I don't know the bench press or even the squat or the deadlifts. So because it obviously increases the amount of resistance that you will um, have to phase as you complete the repetition as opposed to generally when you use just normal weights mm-hmm. uh it becomes uh, more easy at that point so yeah it's uh, can definitely be a way even to um provide different types of ad- adaptations but also variants to your training plan and right. it can maybe uh, even be more fun for you to perform it and when you said uh i find myself gaining more muscle by doing less that that is a very great point because a lot of people think that you want to do like as much as possible because we tend to follow what the media shows us and what people of i don't know uh the olympia do on at the gym so going every time to failure uh, doing thousands of exercise every single day training seven times a week and if you don't do it you (laughs) don't want it bad enough but in reality um the if we want to make progress you can do so by just focusing on training those three to four times a week, that's completely fine. And you can definitely maximize the results even within those amount of sessions and focusing on performing 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. And when I say sets, I mean hard sets. So uh, if we know that the correlation between hypertrophy and volume is intended when volume is intended as uh, sets taken to failure, then we want those number of sets to be at least close, if not to failure. And yeah, the ballpark within 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week will allow you to make the best gains uh, that you can possibly do. And that doesn't mean like doing, working out a lot or doing too much. It's really like you can break that down into training the muscles twice a week or even thrice. And the number of sets actually looks very uh, little compared to what you may be used to, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. In fact, it works even better because you are able to, by doing less, you're able to train harder, accumulate less fatigue and still be able to progress, which at the end of the day, we know that progressive overload will be the main driver of muscle growth. So it's not like doing thousands of reps um, until you've, and if you don't feel sore, you, you think that you haven't made progress, it's actually being able to track your um, gains. So whether it is by increasing the number of reps that you can do per set or the load that you're moving, if you're getting stronger, not necessarily by doing too much volume across the week, then you are uh, making progress in terms of muscle mass. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I keep hearing about like uh, these micro workouts where, you know, even if you, you can do them throughout the day, right? Like even doing 10, 15 minutes at a time. Um, I mean, my workouts have gotten, I've gotten, I think the, 
the stimulus has gotten better. I honestly think uh, that with the bands, they've gotten the stimulus is high and the workout time has come down. And I'm not being not sore actually, and I'm building mm-hmm. muscle because I always thought I was old school for a while, thinking, "Oh, you got to be sore to build muscle." And I know um, one of your posts was, "Does muscle damage cause hypertrophy?" Right. I, I would say no. Um, that and 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 actually, Dr. Jacobs and I talked about this on the last podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? And that's completely uh, correct. Muscle damage does not cause growth because there's no correlation between it. The previous idea was that how come um, we can see a growth in muscle mass when we strength train and there is um, muscle damage as a result? Does this mean that muscle damage is the main cause of hypertrophy or no? Well, it turns out it isn't because um, when we perform muscle damaging workouts, we notice that there is an increase in muscle protein synthesis. So that could lead you to believe that maybe it is for building purposes, but in reality, it turns out it is for just remodeling purposes. When fibers break, they pretty much um, get constructed again by increasing the amount of protein that goes to those cells. They can either be repaired or even um, changed for if they're completely broken, uh, put in simple terms. Then another idea why uh, there was this belief is that following um, muscle damaging workouts, we would notice um, the satellite cell activity would increase. And what satellite cells activity do is pretty much um, help uh, re, uh, muscle cells regrow or recreate or regenerate. And again, uh, we would think that that may be adding new muscle fibers to the muscle because it, it has gotten damaged. So maybe satellite cells are going to help them grow bigger. In reality, turns out it's only for uh, regeneration purposes. So again, that's um, another quote unquote myth debunked. And then there is the third one, which is, well, if we are able to produce more hypertrophy with eccentric contractions compared to uh, concentric ones and eccentric contractions also cause more muscle damage than concentric ones, then we can say that muscle damage causes more hypertrophy. Well, in reality, the reason why uh, eccentric contractions are able to create more hypertrophy is because when we're lowering a weight, for example, uh, on a bench press, so we unrack the barbell and we lower it down to our chest, mm-hmm. the amount of force that we can produce to resist uh, the, the movement is higher because other than muscle fibers themselves, so uh, the amount of uh, actin and myosin cross bridges that are basically forming cross bridges to produce force. It's not only those that are accounting for the force created, but also titan, which is um, a molecule of protein that is found, um, which basically produces force uh, by resisting the formation of the muscle is also accounting for the, the force produced. So that means that we have now two systems producing force as we lowering the load, as opposed to only muscle fibers producing force as we are um, pushing the weight up. So that's one reason why eccentric contractions can create more force because it's not only the muscle fibers, but also tighten and uh, that uh, are producing force. And that can account for actually um, about 30% more no. in terms of load. Uh, so for example, if 
we can concentrically lift a load for uh, our one RM, then we can lower that the same load by even adding 30% more of the load. And that's why then uh, eccentric contractions are able to produce more hypertrophy. They simply uh, allow you to lift more weight and therefore produce more mechanical tensions uh, to be experienced by the muscle fibers, which will grow as a response. So again, there, we cannot find like a positive correlation between muscle damage and hypertrophy. And if anything, it can only be likely detrimental if uh, you experience muscle damage like long-term, because that means that you're doing too much volume uh, to begin with, and you're not allowing yourself to recover between sessions. So yeah, yeah, yeah that was really good. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> to, to summarize, uh, getting sore could actually cause, being sore all the time could actually cause more harm than good. Right, at least if um, your goal is to build muscle, it's definitely not the most optimal way to train. Obviously, you will experience some level of soreness depending on what you're doing. For example, if you're changing exercises or if you're coming from a period of detraining, you will sure. definitely experience some soreness because you are now, quote unquote, not used to it anymore. Right. But it should quickly go away. And that shouldn't be uh, seen as a metric that uh, is wrong. It's just the way it is. Your body adapts, but that shouldn't be seen as the only metric that produces result. What produces result is getting stronger, and actually seeing like uh, trackable progress that you can notice. Like now I'm able to lift, uh, let's say hundred kilos on the bench. So that's around 220 uh, on the bench. Am I able from now uh, after two months to lift 230, 240? Yes. Okay. Then that is progress. Not right. uh, looking for soreness and, you know, all these mm, metrics that do not, uh, allow you to track uh, actual progress. And, and and the other thing I got from what you talked about was um, just so people know, like you should focus a lot too on slowing down the movement at, at like, as you, like you talk about a bench press, you're pressing it up, right? Most people focus on that part and then, and then letting it down. is just like an afterthought, right? Like right, right. And I, I fell into that too for a long time, but you, you almost want to think almost like two seconds down, um, right? It's because um, that, that's where you can find your, your most gains. Mm -hmm. And actually, it can even be lowered uh, within two to three seconds, depending three on seconds. what load you're moving. Okay. But, and there's a lot of info even like on the eccentric overloading because it's an area that most lifters probably don't spend uh, too much time on. Because yeah, as you said, most people focus on the concentric because mm -hmm. generally lowering it is quite easy. And then you just try to push it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of uh, uh, stuff even on eccentric overloading. And when it comes to maximizing hypertrophy, then blocks of actually eccentric overloading can play huge roles because you're now working with super, super, super maximal weights that wouldn't be able, you wouldn't be able to lift uh, concentrically but since you have the ability to do it eccentrically, then you, uh, you pretty much find a new way to simulate your muscle mass with more load uh, without necessarily having to get stronger concentrically. So yeah. that, that would be, be like, like the, the negatives, right? We call them, like right. we used right. to call right. them negatives. I'm sure they still do, but so that would be like, obviously you'd want someone to spot you. Let's just say you're doing a bench press, maybe put on there, like you said, more than you could do concentrically, which means pushing it off your chest. 
and, yes. and, and, and have them help you at least spot you as you're lowering it slowly and then correct. help them get it off your chest and do it. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Are, I think a lot of people don't do those. I used to do those because they're very difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, they're very yeah. difficult. The only downside is probably the fact that you need at least somebody else to help you. Right. So that can be seen like, uh, you know, maybe it's something not feasible for many, but definitely worth like trying and experimenting it out. Yeah. For and sure. I'm going to, and that just reminds me just with, with, with the bands and the X3 that I use is to, to focus a little bit more on that eccentric part and slow down. Um, mm -hmm. cause that's, that's when you can make some real gains. Exactly. But at the same time, when we're talking about eccentrics, we need to keep in mind that eccentrics cause uh, more, uh, muscle damage compared to concentric ones and muscle damage is linked to fatigue accumulation and the fatigue that we experience at the CNS level. Therefore, when we want to program, for example, blocks of eccentric training, we want to make sure that we are not accumulating too much too fatigue much. in the sessions, because then again, that can be detrimental for your training plan and so on and so forth. Very good. Wow. This was great. Um, I could talk for much longer, but <laughs> we're getting up, we're getting up on an hour. What would you say, just last question, what would you say one tip for like a middle-aged man or woman who wants to maybe get their body back to what it once was when they were in their twenties, what would, what would one tip you'd give that person? Mm, first of all, I would say that of course it comes down to training and nutrition. So you, if you can, you want to find like, what is the best way, or at least the easiest thing that you can do now to just approach towards that world whether it is to eat a little bit more protein during the day or going outside for a walk, mm -hmm. just, I don't know, the, the easiest thing that you can think of that still pushes you towards a healthier quote unquote habit. Mm -hmm. Now, once that new thing becomes a habit and you do it um, easily, then you can push into higher level ones. So maybe it can be resistant training or eating uh, more nutritious food aside from only eating more protein. So it can be like, experimenting with more veggies or more healthier source sources of foods that contain more fibers and again, more uh, protein. Then going outside for a walk and potentially starting resistant training. Mm. My main tip could be find the way that it is enjoyable for you and uh, not like feeling that it's like a chore for you to go outside and most importantly, that you're doing for your, you're doing it for yourself and not for anybody else. So mm. you want that to be, okay, I want to do this. What is the easiest way that I can at least start? Can I do that? Yes, sure. Okay. Now I feel more motivated to keep pushing towards a new goal and so on. Mm. But we, we can only do that when we enjoy it. And most importantly, when we um, do it for ourselves, because we actually want it and not because somebody else is pushing us. Otherwise we would lose like the motivation uh, if it wasn't intrinsic to begin with. Yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, take small steps, right? You, it's all about making small wins and one thing at a time, I always say. <laughs> right, because it comes down to doing it forever, pretty much. Like right. you want to long-term because otherwise you will not reap its benefits. So what is the way that you can do it and sustain it for a long time based on your own habits? You don't want to follow anybody else's if you don't think they uh, align with yours. Mm. Work on yours 
and see what are the small changes that you can do. And from there, take it one step further. Love it. Love it. Well, this was great. Um, the best place, well, you tell me the best place for people to find you uh, is? Yeah, my best place to find me is Instagram. So at Physique, uh, I'm working now on a website that is going to be launching soon. Uh, but yeah, everything can be found on the page. Um, if you and if you guys enjoy like to see illustrations that talk about uh, fitness nerdy stuff, then that's <laughs> the best place that you can find them. <laughs> awesome! Yeah, this is great. And I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes for people to um, to click on it. They can find you easily. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, this was great, and um, yeah, we'll talk in the future, I guess. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure for me, and it was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Get Lean, Eat Clean Nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day, and gain muscle, all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well, I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one with in my Fat Burner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards our health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me at brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.